Welcome today. We're glad that you're here. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I have a friend in the church, one of the men in the church is helping introduce me to the Franklin Mountains, and so we go hiking. We've been doing that for a few weeks now, and not the first, but uh, my eyes gravitated over to the part where it had the map of the trail, and then that telltale part that says, you are here. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that there is a spiritual point of reference for us in that little piece of that sign. I've seen those kind of signs all over the place. As a matter of fact, until I saw that sign, I was going to open today talking about my experience at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, which is a city unto itself. And even with the signs that say you are here, it's easy to get lost in that maze of hallways. The spiritual reality that I want us to get fits into our guidelines, and we are now uh, several weeks deep into our series about guidelines, the values that we adopt as a church that will shape the culture of us as we go forward. And the value today, the guideline that I want us to look at is simply stated, go somewhere, but start where you are. So in Ephesians chapter 4, we find our way into this, and as we step into that passage, which we'll do in just a few moments, let me start off by emphasizing the you are here part of this. Where are you spiritually today? As you walk into this place, with all the things that you anticipate every Sunday when you come in, with all of that stuff swimming around out there, somewhere lost in all of that, or maybe not lost, maybe it's just not really uh, getting much attention. But there is a reality that says spiritually you are here. So how would you characterize your spiritual life today? Vibrant? Growing? Anemic? Or what's a spiritual life? You are here. But I don't want us to just lean on the you are here part on your own personal point of reference. We also need to answer that question or speak to that issue as it relates to who we are as a church and where we are as a church spiritually. Yesterday, my grandson celebrated his third birthday. Now, they were here a couple of weeks ago, and they picked a week where uh, we didn't have church, so many of you know of who he is, but you haven't really met him. Let me just say that he is one of the most alive three-year-olds I have ever met. I know that because he was in my house for 11 weeks over that six-day period. But to know Declan today is to not really fully grasp where he was three years ago today. Declan was born nine weeks early. Now, in case you don't know the medical part of that, that means that he was very seriously premature. And as a matter of fact, this week I was looking through some of the pictures of his early days on this planet three years ago. He weighed three pounds and two ounces, and within just a couple of days, he was down into the upper two-pound range. We have pictures as we didn't get to see him uh, in the NICU uh, for a day or so, and we have pictures where we went in there, and I was able to push my hands through that, the sides of that uh, incubator-type thing, and, uh, and he reached out, and he grabbed my pinky, 
And the picture shows that his hand was so small that even on my smallest finger, his hand didn't go all the way around my finger. He was as small a human being as I had ever had the opportunity to get up close to. It's amazing to think about where he was three years ago and where he is today. He's grown incredibly. He has a healthy set of lungs. He has an incredible willpower that drives us all crazy at times. He's developed a deep affection for people, and he knows how to enjoy life, except when he's not enjoying life, and he knows how to do that pretty well, too. Three years makes a lot of difference in the life of a young child. Let's use my grandson Declan and his development over the last three years to put it out here for us on a spiritual level. How far progressed are you over the last three years in your spiritual life? You see, one of the things that happens, I think, and it's not that we intend to do this, but we easily slip into a mode where we just kind of, you know, we make that initial commitment for Christ, as we have seen today with two different young ladies, as we recognize a choice to follow Jesus Christ. But so often in our churches, we allow that choice to just kind of slip off into, okay, well, that was part of my life. Now I just kind of do the church thing. How are you spiritually today? Are you further down the road with Jesus Christ than you were three years ago? As a church, how are we doing over the last three years or so? This truth that I want to hammer down for us today is that we need to go somewhere, but in order for us to get there, we have to start where we are. John chapter 10, verse 10, one of those life verses for me. You hear me refer to it on regular occasion because it's such a life verse for me. Jesus says the thief, that's referring to Satan, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. It pictures life without Jesus Christ. And Satan does an incredible job at stealing and killing and destroying life. Our world is populated by people that give testimony to the reality and the truth of what Jesus said there. But Jesus is not content to leave it there. He says, but I have come that you may have life. If you take the way the Greek reads there, let me just put it in English for you like we talk as a, as a most of the time kind of a language. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life that will blow your mind. Do you enjoy that kind of life with Jesus? Is there room for that? Or was just Jesus using a superlative that kind of lays it out there to say, well, there's more than what you think. What kind of spiritual vitality do you mirror in your life today? And I've said this before, and I'm going to take what I've said in the last couple of messages and say it in this statement, that growth is a natural byproduct of attaching ourselves to Jesus Christ. If we attach, and when we attach to him, he has a way of bringing us along, just like my grandson and his development, most of which is natural and normal, started off in a hole, but he's kind of catching up. He'll never play tackle for UTEP, but he's growing as a young boy. How about us in our own spiritual life and growth and vitality. Paul's writing to the Ephesian church, and as we've looked a little bit on the last couple of Sunday nights in our study of the seven churches of Revelation, as, as we find that Ephesian church, we find a church that is in a vibrant community. Matter of fact, that's in a community where uh, much of the stamp of the Roman Empire has been firmly emplaced upon it. Paganism, 
emperor worship, all of those things. And in that context, Paul writes to an Ephesian church who needs a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of growth kind of language. And so in Ephesians 4, we come to one of those seminal passages, one of those watershed kind of passages where Paul, speaking into that church, speaks to the church universal over the course of history. And he said, here's some things as it relates to growth. This is growth talk from Paul. And so we read in chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul says this. And he gave, that's Jesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's no way in the world that I can do justice to that passage in just the hour and a half that we have in here this morning. <laughs> you know, sometimes I just throw stuff out there to see if you're really listening or not. This passage is packed. So let me take you on a little bit of a trip through some of it. The first time I was exposed to this little passage that I just read was in a classroom at Wayland Baptist University a number of years ago now. And I, it's not that I hadn't read it before, but it was never emphasized in my growth and development as a young Christian. And I sat in that class with a bunch of other preacher boys, and our professor laid out for us something of the truth of this and how it impacts, and it has since impact, impacted my life in definitive ways and my ministry as well. And I hope however long you let me be here with you, that it will impact your life the same way. Because this is full of growth language for us. The first time that I heard it, I was centering in on verses 11, or particularly verse 11, first part of verse 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. That part of it is where we find that there is this set of people, the role of ministers in the church, as I will say it today, and they have these offices in the church, but there's that office for a particular calling, a particular reason, that's the first part of verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I remember sitting in that class, hearing that and thinking, I've never heard that before. I always thought it was the pastor's job to do all of the work of the church. It's a convenient passage, a convenient verse for preachers who don't really want to work much. Our deal is to say, well, you will equip you and you go do the work. And now that's a joke too, okay, just so you, you got to stay with me to see to it that the people of God are equipped to do the work that God has called all of us to do. That was me sitting in a class as a young wannabe preacher boy. But it wasn't long after that, maybe a handful of years, probably more like a handful of months, that I went to a Sunday school conference at Glorietta Conference Center. And it was at that conference where we were learning something about being Sunday school teachers in a youth specialty Sunday school training class, the teacher got up and he began to unfold for us what comes after verse 12 or after the first part of verse 12. 
And it was like a light came on for me. That, that it's not just about a pastor equipping people to do work. Plenty of work goes on in every church. There's lots of things going on behind the scenes, different stuff that happens just so that we can have an hour-long worship service. But the work of the ministry happens every day. Most of it doesn't happen inside the church building. It happens out in the real world. And so the growth language began to unfold. It's like a searchlight came onto my heart as a spotlight came onto this passage of Scripture as that particular teacher began to walk us through some of the equipping that is to be done. It's not just generally equipping. Listen to what he says, verse 13. Well, let me go back to verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I'll get to that in just a few moments. But here's the kicker. Here's the part that makes this a guideline for us, a value with which we create a culture of growth. He says, to, the, uh, to, the, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, And if that's not enough for you, he doubles down on that ideal with a contrasting picture, but it's the same teaching point, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. And then verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Clearly, Jesus does not intend for his followers to be stagnant. It seems awfully quiet in here, so let me make that statement again. Clearly, Jesus does not intend for his followers to be stagnant in their spiritual lives. I don't say that as an attacking kind of a statement. I'm not mad or anything like that. This is just truth. I would suggest that this is fundamental truth. This is basic truth in the Christian life. And when we begin to wrap our minds and our hearts around these few verses and what is expected of us, it opens the door for us to understand something about this thing that says go somewhere. And so on a personal level, we begin to get a picture of where we're supposed to go. It's to mature manhood, he says, to maturity in Christ. Let me just say that none of us will ever reach maturity until we get to glory with Jesus. But we are to be maturing until that time. If you don't really still not necessarily sold on this, let me just take you back to a couple of the guys who attached themselves to Jesus early on. Simon Peter, for instance, the big mouth disciple, the guy who always had all of the right answers except when they weren't right, but he still gave them anyway. The blustery kind of a guy, the self-confident one, the fisherman that Jesus said at one point, if you'll come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And so Simon Peter followed him, and for the next three years and a little bit more, he attached himself to Jesus. And this same one who had made his living out on the Sea of Galilee, fighting the elements, eking out an existence, finds himself, by the time we get to the book of Acts chapter 4, finds himself as the spokesman for this burgeoning young enterprise called Christianity. And he stands in the face of those 
same people who were responsible for putting Jesus to death. And he shakes that old fisherman finger in the face of those guys and says, you're the ones who killed him. I would submit to you that Simon Peter is a pretty good evidence for us about what growth looks like in the Christian life. If Simon Peter is not your cup of tea, let's go to the guy that had to be the guy that everybody at high school had an issue with. You know the guys I'm talking about in high school, the ones who walk down, strut down the hall because they're Mr. Wonderful? The bully, the one who has all the right answers, the ones who pin you to a locker to make sure you agree with him. That's my brother, by the way. <laughs> or it used to be. You know where I get that with John? This is the disciple John. Um, it's because there's a little passage, and I've referred to this before, little passage where it, he and his brother were referred to as the sons of thunder. Don't think that that was just a casual nickname. How do you get a nickname like the son of thunder? And this same John, who was willing to call down fire from heaven on a group of community who rejected Jesus, by the time we get to the end of the New Testament, in 1 John, he's writing, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. John's a pretty good evidence to us that when you attach yourself to Jesus, you change and you grow. You see, the reality is that when we spend time with Jesus, he transforms us. It's not just change for the sake of change. Jesus transforms us by design. Hear me very carefully here. By design, the Christian life is a life of transformation. It is about being different. It is about becoming more like Jesus, and it is a lifelong process. Where are you going spiritually. When I was working my doctoral studies, this, this passage and this whole point of reference in the Christian life just kept nudging its way to the top of my thinking. And God led me into doing a project with leaders in a local church, volunteer leaders in a local church, and also minister, uh, called as ministers in the local church. And it was the point of intentional transformation. Not that we did the transformation. It was intentionally attaching ourselves to Jesus through prayer and praying scripture in particularly, and to do so intentionally over a period of eight weeks. And the change that we saw in the lives of those ministers, especially and some of those key leaders in local church was incredible. The exit interviews from that had these people who had been walking with Jesus for years. Some of them are still some of my heroes in the Christian faith because of their maturity. And they sat in front of me and said, it was amazing to me how God began to reveal things in my life that were not honoring to him, that were not Jesus-like, just because I intentionally focused on my walk with him. Where are you going spiritually? Attaching ourselves to Jesus is by definition an act of transformation, and he will make us what he wants us to be. What is God teaching you these days? What are the lessons that he has in mind for you on this day in the middle of July 2018? And how are those lessons different than the ones he was teaching you in the middle of July 2015? Where are you going?
And maybe a good question to ask is, how should we measure this maturity? How should we measure the process of maturing? It would be easy for us to slip into church mode here. Church mode measures stuff by our activity. It's what we do or maybe even what we know. So we might say, well, I'm maturing. I'm being transformed because I go to church much more than I used to. Well, okay, I'm glad that you do that, and we want it to be a positive kind of thing when you do come. But I would suggest to you that just measuring spiritual maturity by the proximity to a building might not be the best method. Some of us would say, well, you know, I'm involved in the church. I do this. I'm, uh, I'm on this committee, or I do this. I'm in this mission project, or Maybe we even say, well, I, I memorize Scripture, and you know, I'm, I'm memorizing one verse a decade. And so, <laughs> the measure that we use for maturing process in our spiritual lives is not really about what we do, and it's not so much about what we know. I say that because the first century people that Jesus had the most problem with were the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, and they knew a lot of Scripture, and they were really regular about going to church, and Jesus called them a bunch of whitewashed tombs. How do we measure the maturing process? I think the answer centers on who we are. Because the more we attach to Jesus, the more like him we become. As we said last week, we begin to see people the way he saw people. We begin to love people the way that he loves people. And so maybe just on a personal level, just as a little bit of homework for you, I might suggest that your prayer this week, put all of your prayer list aside. I know that that sounds, I know some people go, he said put your prayer list aside. Put your prayer list aside and just get real with Jesus and say, how am I like you? And how do I need to be more like you? You might be surprised how God will take care of all those other things on your prayer list. And he'll answer that prayer in your own life. Where are you going? Are you changing? Are you transforming? And I'll leave this point with that last little phrase. Until we all reach to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What? a mouthful for a Christian in the growth process. So go somewhere personally, but let's spend a little bit of time talking about where we're going corporately as well. Did you notice that I skipped over a few things of what Paul had to say there? I emphasized the things about personal growth, and let me go back and hit a couple of things where he talks about the body as a whole. And so we find this in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, we drop down to verse 16. From whom Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's not only in this passage the emphasis on personal growth, where are you going, but there's also the emphasis on the body growing. Where are we going? 
These, I would suggest to you, that we just read are the marks of maturity for a community of faith. They stand together for the cause of Christ. They work together to promote the kingdom of God in a world that desperately needs it. Where are we going? Let me give you a couple of statements that I think have great impact for us. Here's the first one. Every generation of every church must strike the delicate balance of where we came from with where we're going. Every generation of every church must strike the delicate balance of where we came from with where we're going. One of the things that I find is true across my experience in churches is that pastors love to rearrange the furniture. Are you a furniture rearranger? Are you still there? Hello? So I rearranged the office furniture in my office. Now I know some of you are going, oh my goodness. Levi Price had that stuff where he wanted it. David Lowry didn't change the furniture. So I'm smart enough. I'm not that smart, but I am smart enough to know that if I'm going to change, rearrange the furniture in my office, I better have good reason to do it. And I did. Okay? And if you want to know what the reason was and how I rearranged it, you come talk to me and we'll flesh all of that stuff. Okay? That, that's, but I'm going to take it off of a real place and let's put it into the life of a church. Are you a rearranger of things? Some people just change for the sake of change. You know how many Baptists it takes to change a light bulb? Change? Who said anything about change? I was in a barber shop this week and I heard a guy talking how many Methodists it takes to change a light bulb. And I thought about that Baptist wood and how many pastors have gotten fired because they changed the light bulb or rearranged the furniture of church life. Every generation of every church must strike the delicate balance of where we came from and where we are going. Hear me say this. Please listen with both ears. It makes no sense to change something for the sake of changing it. I'm committed not to rearrange furniture unnecessarily in my time as your pastor, however long you let me be. Okay, I don't want you to hear the word change and people go out and going, oh, he's about to change something. He's got something in mind. I don't. But here's another truth it puts with it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Churches err. They make mistakes when they get complacent with the way things are. We have to strike a delicate balance between embracing our heritage and the legacy that we've been given with the reality that things are changing out there. You want a good point of reference? The world outside of the walls of this church is vastly different than it was on the day that this church was built. The world has changed. And so as a church, if we're going to go somewhere the way we're supposed to go somewhere and build up to unity of the faith and so that we can equip and help people grow in maturity, we always have to be walking that fine line between the way things are and what needs to happen for us to be able to be effective in making things the way they should be. This church has a long history of pastors and leaders, lay and otherwise, who understood that truth and stepped delicately into those things that moved us where we needed to be so that we are where we are today. So as a church, in order to get that right, we need to have one eye focused on who we are 
And another eye focused on what's happening around us and both eyes focused on Jesus Christ as he leads us through an uncertain future. There's change. There's transformation. Jesus is on the loose today and his church must follow him where he goes. So we need some kind of a guiding principle for where we are going so that we don't do dumb things and so that we don't blow up the peace of the church just in the name of going forward. What guiding principle might we have that will help us with that? Here's the one that I suggest. Every generation of every church must recommit to the mandate of making disciples who grow. Every generation of every church must recommit itself to the mandate of making disciples of Jesus Christ's people. We must always be about helping people mature because Jesus promises a life that is much better than just religion. So where are you going? Where are we going? Finally, with three minutes left, we get to the title of the sermon. You are here. And that value, the guideline that I laid out at the beginning is go somewhere. I've tried to lay out so far where we ought to be going. The second half of that is, but you have to start where you are. If you're hearing all of this and your first response is to get defensive or your first response is to get self-searching and start beating yourself up because you're not where you should be or maybe you haven't grown like you know you could have over the last three years instead of all of those things why don't you just take it as a point of reference okay so this is where I am on that map at the 10,000 at the bottom of the 10,000 step trail it says you are here it had it laid out where you're going to go but if you don't start at the right place you'll never get to where you're trying to go the only place you can start from is where you are. So where are you? And where are we? I'm not trying to be cute or anything like that. The reality is we're here. (laughs) This is where we are today. Where you are is where you are. And so you start there. Where might God be wanting to take you in your Christian life? You know, there have been several times in my life that I just kind of got fed up with the status quo of my own Christianity. And in those times when I've gone to God and I've said, okay, God, if that's all there is to it, then I'm checking out because really there's got to be more to it than this. And, and without fail, when I get to those points, God says, okay, you want to go to another level? Let's go. But I just have to tell you, when he says let's go, he changes stuff in my life. <laughs> he makes me move to El Paso <laughs> or allows me to move to El Paso or go back to school when you thought you were long since past school age stuff. Or quit a job. Or have a hard discussion with a spouse. Or have a hard discussion with somebody else in your life that the relationship is blown up because of selfishness. If you want God to take you to another level, you have to start where you are. And I'll promise you, he will take you places that will blow your mind. Let's pray. And as we go to prayer, I want to ask you to personalize this message today. 
Where are you with God? How are things in your spiritual life? How long has it been since God took you to a new level? If somebody else were to look at you, would they be able to see that Jesus Christ is alive and at work, that he's changing you? If you don't know him, that's the place to start. You have to start with a personal relationship with him. It's more than just carrying a name. It's more than just joining the church. It's about life change. It's about life change that lasts for eternity. But it starts, as these two ladies who are baptized today reminded us, it starts with an acknowledgement of, I need Jesus in my life. I can't get where I'm trying to go without him. Sin has taken its toll on all of us. Jesus fixes that if we just accept what he's done for us. So if you don't know him, that's where you start. But many of us started well, and we just haven't really followed through too much. Where are you? Where are you going? Where's Jesus in that? And Father, use the time now to change lives, to begin the process of transformation for each of us who are willing to step into that and say, do with me what you want. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation time, please stand. The invitation time is for you to make any decision. Maybe it's to join our church, to gather with these other people who have said, we want to go where God's taking us, where he wants us to be. Maybe it's about a commitment to Christ. Whatever it is, this is a time. So you come as we sing.